you think that Me Too and other reckonings fixed the entertainment industries, you are very mistaken. And there are reasons to have hope, but the industry very often mistakes identifying a problem for solving it. And it hand waves and does a performance around, we feel bad about this, and then it just carries on as usual once everyone forgets. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Nate Chenin. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, whose voice did we hear at the top of the episode? So that was Maureen Ryan, known to one and all as Mo. She's a veteran TV critic and entertainment journalist who's now a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. And she has a new book out called Burn It Down, Power, Complicity and a Call for Change in Hollywood. Amazing title and a really good book. Yeah, I'm guessing is the book what led you to want to talk to Mo? It is. I've known her a long time and I've been reading her for ages and I've been really struck how over the last few years she has pivoted away from criticism toward writing pieces that expose abuses of power in the TV industry. That's the topic of this book and so I wanted to know the nuts and bolts of how she does this kind of reporting. And as usual, we will also have some bonus conversation for Slate Plus members. What can they expect to hear? I asked Mo how doing this different kind of writing had affected her career. These are harder stories to write and to place, and they take a lot longer to work on. On the other hand, they also led to this great new book. So we talked about that. That sounds great. If you're a Slate Plus member, make sure to stick around for that conversation at the end of the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get exclusive members-only segments, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. Also, if you become a Slate Plus member, you'll be supporting our work and the work of everyone at Slate. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Now, before we get into June's conversation with Mo Ryan, uh, one little programming note. There's a bit of background noise at the beginning of this interview. It's, uh, you know, atmosphere from Chicago. <laughs> so, uh, But rest assured, it disappears after about four and a half minutes. And in the meantime, it'll give you a nice sense of place. <laughs> Let's listen in on June's conversation with Mo Ryan. Maureen Ryan, welcome to Working. I'm so excited. Thank you for doing this with me. Thank you. So somebody reaches out to you. Is there a typical process? What typically happens after someone reaches out to you and say, hey, I worked on the show or I am working on this show and this is going on? Like, what mm -hmm. happens then? What do you do? I got to tell you, June, I'm so excited to do this podcast because I've so wanted to talk about this. And I actually keep typing up notes for what I call sustainable journalism. Um, because I think I've developed a process over the past few years and I really, I believe in it for what this kind of reporting is. And I see, frankly, I see shitty versions of, um, reporting on or about vulnerable populations all the time or, or people who have experienced misconduct or trauma or anything like that. And I, I have incredibly strong feelings about how you should and shouldn't do that. I mean, all reporting right, should be right, responsible, right. right? But over the past six years especially, I will give you the routine that I've developed. Because, and it's based on the two following principles. First of all, the people I'm talking to 
have experienced something bad. Quite often it's a pattern of multiple bad things over a period of time. So no matter what, one human being to another, you got to take that on board and really think about it. Really operate from that place that people are scared. Um, I've talked to people in tears many times. I've talked to people who, while I'm talking to them, I think, oh, I think this person has undiagnosed PTSD. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is incredibly delicate reporting that you have to do or just treatment of fellow yeah. human beings. So that's one thing. They're in a vulnerable population or, you know, just, you have to take special care with these people who've been through these things. The second thing is um, it's Hollywood. You know, you can get fired and exiled from the industry for saying, you know, four sentences that somebody doesn't like or I don't like this pitch mm-hmm. or you're co- that you didn't bring coffee that was the right temperature. You can get exiled or have your reputation ruined through lies and innuendo over nothing. Mm-hmm. Over nothing. So these are difficult positions to get, very easy positions yeah. to lose, very difficult to sustain a career. And I actually think over the last decade, more difficult to sustain a career. But that's a different right. topic. Hence the strike. That's all I'll say about that. Um, so that's the combination that I'm working with is... Uh, people who've been through difficult, if not traumatic situations, or may still be yes, in them. Yes. And people who are in a very vindictive, precarious, difficult, brutal industry. So so for, with that said, what I do, someone will reach out to me. Um, and now, like, I, th- I think like, 80% of the Writers Guild of America has my phone number or something like that. You know, 70% of the Directors Guild, I don't like, I don't know where, SAG is a very large union, so I don't know how many actors. But a lot, I always, you know, tell people like, you know, yeah, if you know, if you want to pass my info on and there are all these back channels where people share information with each other. And so my phone number or email can be one of those things. And so people or DMs, I think social media actually has been an incredible uh, liberator. I mean, we all know how it can be bad, but I cannot tell you how many people have come to me through DMs. It's just, and my DMs, by the way, are not open to to all because I find that to be like an abuse or creepy stuff free for all. Um, But, you know, there's enough people who are find ways to find me. And so they come to me and I usually give them a bit of a routine right off the top. And I say... Um, let's say the person's name is Terrell. Hey, Terrell. Um, I'm Mo, and I just want to tell you right now, we are off the record. I'm going to tell you how my job works. And first of all, I'm sorry for what you've experienced, because typically I know like at least mm-hmm. some of what they've been going through. So we're off the record, Terrell. Um, if we end up doing anything that is not off the record, you will know when that's going to happen. You'll be aware And I will stay in touch with you if I decide to pursue Mm -hmm. that. So what I say to them is this. Okay, off the record, you know, I I would like you to tell me as much as you're comfortable telling me. We don't have to have just one conversation. You can take breaks. If you need to hang up, we can hang up. Um, Everything that you tell me will remain in a vault. And then... You know, I don't give them endless amounts of time to make this decision, but typically what I say is, you know, you can have a think about it. 
after this conversation, if you decide tomorrow or the next day or in a few days or in a week, um, I don't, because typically I have a bunch of stuff on yeah, the yeah. go at, the, at, at any one time. So, so if, if Terrell wants a week to think about it, you know, he, you know, Terrell might come back to me and say, um, you know, I've thought about it and I actually don't want to move forward. I've had that conversation hmm. many times because my whole reporting ethos is about the following. What will illuminate something that needs to be illuminated and move things forward, either for this individual, for many individuals, or for the industry as a whole? And really, a lot of times it's about all of those things at once. And so people who are like, oh, Me Too has gone too far. First of all, have you met a legal review for a Me Too piece? (laughs) My God, it's so incredibly complex and difficult. And second of all, it's like, for me, it's like, it's not about taking someone down. Like, I'm not doing a drive-by. You know, I don't know exactly know what your situation is at Vanity Fair. You know, I don't know if you're a staffer or a long-term mm. freelancer, but like, you, it, even if you wanted to, it's not in your power to to say that any story that somebody comes to you with will will appear in print. So, kind of how, and no. so like, how does that? And I know you've talked about what you're what you're telling the people who come to you like how right how do you kind of you know i don't know that often the outsiders kind of understand you know how it is you know Mm -hmm. that that process so how does that work out a lot of times what i'm doing is journalism education how does it work yeah because if you if you're you know a camera operator or an actor or you haven't made it, you know, a, a writer, you haven't made a study of how journalism <laughs> yeah, operates yeah. and how a responsible outlet does yeah. their work. You know, it just doesn't come up for you. Like maybe you do some press occasionally, but you're yeah. just getting a 10 minute or 20 minute yeah. interview. And it's not like you, you sit there and know how complex in-depth journalism works. So I'll say to them, we're going to talk. Um, I'll be transparent with you about what I, th- you know, once we've sort of, co- I, I have the information that you're offering up. I will give you some, you can ask me questions. That's a big part of it. And they'll say, okay, well, do I need to be mm-hmm. named? And what I typically say is this, and this is something I also feel strongly about, especially given the industry brutality mm-hmm. of it all. I say, that's up to you. I will be transparent with them in moments when I've had editors say to me, we need more people on the record or, mm-hmm. you know, like, if I feel like they're not too too vulnerable and they can handle that conversation, I will say it would be helpful in this juncture if we could have a name yeah. or, you know. But overall, the typical thing I give, especially at the start, is you should do what's right for you. It helps the story if you're named. I won't judge you even a little bit if you don't yeah. want to be named because this is where I'm going to get up on my soap, soapbox and I hope people take this away from it. If I coerce, bully, shame, or manipulate my sources, how am I any better than the people who are running roughshod over them in their in the jobs that they have? Like, because I've had people say to me, and I feel like they think I'm going to be disappointed in them. They'll, you know, Terrell goes away and has a think and says, "Yes, I want to be part of a story. I can supply you with five other sources, and then those people will typically supply me with like yeah. additional people." I don't want to be named and I'll say, okay. And I feel like they think I'm going to like kind of shame them or say something. And I'm like, yeah. nope, yeah, no. And the thing is throughout the process, 
let's say that Terrell gave me a tip. We did our interview and I have information from him that I'm corroborating with other people. And now I have 20 yeah. sources. Later on, because I, I keep in touch with sources. There are t- people I talk to for the book probably 30 wow. times. You're like, I don't, like, I'm not. And that's the time-consuming nature of yes. this, you know. I Honestly, the people I meet are really interesting and, and very oftentimes inspiring. But, you know, it's, it's, it is time-consuming. But I'll say to them, hey, Terrell. So Terrell will then, by that point, know within his community or that workplace, a lot of other people are going to talk. And maybe because I've been reaching out, that person has already been fired. So maybe Terrell is like, you know what? And I'll, he'll say, how many other people are going to be named? And I'll say, at this point, seven other people. And so he mm-hmm, might change mm-hmm. his mind. Or he yeah. might not. Um, so what I try to do within the story, po- the reporting process is give people a sense of agency and a sense of transparency and accountability. And now, of course, you know, I can't tell Terrell who else is going to be named or yeah, what they're yeah. going to say. I mean, I can't, there are certain things I can't divulge to other sources and, um, you know, ethically speaking, I, I try not to, you know, do things that are questionable or that makes sources think, oh gosh, is she running around town telling other people that I'm working with a journal? Like, you know what I mean? So I try to sort of keep things siloed to the extent they need to be, but I'm very honest with them also about, and then then they feel like I, I find a sense of investment. So if I say, look, the section of the story that uh, we talked about this topic to do with this toxic workplace, I don't think it's going to make it in because of X, Y, mm-hmm. and Z. The lawyers mm-hmm. have said this. And so, um, you know, to some degree, I take them behind the curtain, again, to the point where it's of interest yeah. to them, or they're like, well, why, why isn't this going to be in the story? Well, because for that particular kind of allegation, I would need this kind of corroboration yeah. or proof or whatever. There's oftentimes things I know, but I only know it from one person. And the lawyers are like, unless you have two sources, yeah. I don't think we can put that in there. So that's a constant dance yeah. as well. Um, so there's the reporting. Typically, it, it's sort of like a phone tree situation where like one person connects you with a bunch more people. You get the information that you need. And oftentimes I'm doing this before I've done a formal pitch. Oh, wow. Um, to, to, so, to, your, to the, to the yeah, place that's going to publish the story. Right, right. I mean, one reason I left Variety was because I wanted to do this kind of artisanal mm-hmm. reporting, which is very time consuming and can take yeah, months yeah. at a time. And it, maybe it's not the only thing I'm doing, but it can take up to six wow. months. And as you know, like that, that pays incredibly well to be like a, a lot in depth reporter on a freelance sure, basis. Sure. We'll be right back with more of June's conversation with Mo Ryan. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. 
Listeners, we want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we answer listener questions. So please tell us your creative challenges and let us help you out. Drop us a line at workingatslate.com and you can also send a voice memo to that address. We just love getting voice memos. Or you can give us a ring at 304-933-WORK and leave a message. And if you are enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, back to my conversation with Mo Ryan. You're speaking with your sources with a, from a position of trust, from a position of, um, you know, you want them to know, to have faith in you. But obviously you also have to corroborate their story, which, as we know, is very yeah. tricky. Uh, you know, the power imbalances yeah. are profound, but... You, you know, obviously you do have to do due diligence. So given those profound inequalities, how do you do that? I mean, because with with the people that you are, you know, you're saying I've heard this about or say you hear a story about show X. How do you or, Mm -hmm. you know, person Y at show X? What do you do then? Do you go, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. what, What do you do to sort of to test um, I don't know if it's test the story is the right way of putting it, but how do you kind of confront um, the person who's being accused or the show or network that's being accused? Well, that's so that's actually a really tricky part of it because, um, you know, just to sort of answer this in a couple of different ways, one of the things that is in, very beneficial about having covered the industry for 30 years is that if someone I've known for 20 years comes to me and says, there's a really bad situation happening over here. And here's a funny story. Once um, I was doing a story, a lot of people were really scared. This one person kept going to their car to talk because this per- the, the, the person that they were, <laughs> and then I, I eventually did a story about was still in employment there. And I eventually said, is this Susan? And I figured, cause she hadn't been using her name and it, her name is not Susan, but I was like, I figured out who it was. And so then it's like part of the credibility comes from, and I've had to prepare yeah, lawyer memos yeah. like this of the 18 sources in the story. How long have I known them? Why do I find them credible? And so that's a huge part of it. And with the book, I talked to some people I'd only met last year, you know, so I'm always trying mm-hmm. to, if I'm doing, new reporting on a topic or a person. Mm. I always try to find some new sources so I don't I'm not just relying on the same old stuff. But some people who are in the book I've known for 25 years or more, mm-hmm. you know. So a lot of it is about how long I've known them, do I trust them, has their yeah. information yeah. checked out in the past. Um and and by the way, just I do want to get to going to the person who's the subject of the story, but I just want to talk about briefly that The hardest part is something that you kind of alluded to. Um, And that is being a good listener, understanding that people are recounting things that caused them a great deal of psychological pain or damage and and emotional trauma, perhaps. So it's, it's about holding that space and being compassionate, but also being a reporter in that moment knowing when to say, okay, but do you have a date for that? Do you still have that text? And who was with you at the time? And knowing when not to do that. Do you know what I mean? Like, okay, like, 
Terrell, we're going to take a break for today because sometimes I'm just wiped, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so maybe sometimes I'll talk to someone and I'll, I'll shoot them yes. an email the yes. next day of like, I'm still unclear about this part. And I actually weirdly love the fact-checking process because people often provide more mm. context, provide more information that makes the story richer and deeper. Um, but typically when I'm going out to... So what happens is I do the reporting. I gather the information I'm going to use. Sometimes if there are stats or experts or anything of that nature to include, I you know I try to have that all in hand. And... It varies. Sometimes I, I typically haven't handed in a draft, but maybe I've given you know my editor kind of some idea. You know, at that point, it's a commissioned story, and they they want it. You know, so so what I do then is I typically um, if I if I have the email or any kind of contact information for the person in question who's at the center of the piece, I will reach out to them with a list of questions, and often they're quite specific and they're based on my reporting. Um, because what you want to do is is have all your ducks in a row and then go to either the person in question or to the PR teams. Typically what happens is that you can hear people freaking out. Like I live in the Midwest of the of, <laughs> of the US. So like from 2,000 miles away, I can hear like the massive, like, yeah. you know, yeah, like, oh yeah, gosh, yeah. we have to have a meeting about this. Um, so whether or not I email the individual typically who comes back to me is studio PR, uh, corporate PR, or uh, if I've gone to someone's rep, sometimes I go through their agents or PR, their personal PR. And sometimes typically what happens is I hear back from mm-hmm. a lawyer who was, you know, hired within the last 36 hours. <laughs> and now I, I kind of know the the range of people who get the call. Uh, I, there are some people in my inbox quite regularly. Um so at that point, then the spin game begins and a lot of people, PR and lawyers call me up and want, they do this thing that is now, um, it's not one of my favorite things, June, I'll tell you. They call you up and they say, can we just talk off the record? And what that is, is the spin zone of like, this never happened and my client is you know, does a, a toy drive every year. And, is a little, and the allegation in my stories is never, or the, the, the central fact of my stories is never this person is an ogre all the time. It's never that. But it's that they, typically it's in some way or other, this person or these people abused their power in a way that systematically harmed others. And right, right. what I focused on more and yeah. more is who around them and above them at the studio and network enabled it and looked the other way. Yeah. That was actually something that blew my mind, like, because I, you know, I, I feel like I've, I know what these stories are about, you know, I, I, I kind of know what to expect, that, but there was something that appeared in your book that just, I was like, why have I never thought of that? And it was um, something you said and that, you, you know, Sarah Rodman um, mentioned of like, why does the industry treat journalism, treat journalists like janitors? Why do journalists have to come along and f- go through their trash and find their, you know, whatever they've been doing, and um, like these billion-dollar industries, and that you know it takes some poorly paid journalists because every journalist is poorly paid. What is that about? Like that is bonkers. 
It is bonkers, and it makes me insane. It's just like I have no answer to that, but they absolutely want, they want sort of like either a social media campaign and or journalists to act as their HR department, which is absolutely ridiculous because, as you say, they're multinational corporations. Why are we taking out your trash? I don't know. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. just, come on, man. They yeah. always know. And that's the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, this, you know... Can I just tell you, I wrote about uh, the departure of Glenn Gordon Karen from uh, the show Bull. And I, you know, as is publicly known, uh, the actor and producer Eliza Dushku encountered a situation there and alleged harassment and enabling by the showrunner and then walked away with a $9.5 million settlement. And what I find wild about that and actually completely believable, sadly, the reason she was able to garner that settlement from what I can gather is because CBS's materials, they're like, oh, look, she was, they, they were sending over clips and, you know, video and, and seeing you know, moments that were filmed by the camera crew. The CBS, I believe, thought exonerated everyone on their side of it. And I'm like, yeah, you're not seeing what's in these film clips, you know? So there was enough there that even CBS, not a notoriously generous company, paid Eliza Dushku more than $9 million. And so um, after that, I I don't know what was done behind the scenes because I asked CBS that repeatedly when I was reporting on the fact that Glenn Gordon Karen, the showrunner, was the subject of an HR um, investigation. And then he later departed from Bull. And I'm like, you can go back and look at the coverage of Moonlighting. And I did. And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, the scripts are late. It's a chaotic production. And what I I found really interesting about that was the way that everything was coded. Sybil Shepard was coded as difficult, a difficult woman. Uh, Bruce Willis was coded as the, uh, the the fun-loving bad boy, the charismatic rogue, because his career was blowing up at that time. And then Glenn Gordon Karen talked openly at one point. He said, oh, well, I was no picnic for ABC to deal with and the, the network. You know, he essentially was shoved off running his own show, this legendary show that he created. And so it's like... And so he was the showrunner of, of Moonlighting. Uh, he was the showrunner of Moonlighting. And then years later, I was reporting on him for Bull, which kind yeah, of broke yeah, my heart yeah. because Moonlighting yeah. for critics of my generation yeah. is a big deal. And so I just feel like this whole idea that like, oh, golly, how could we have known? I'm like, I don't know. Read the yeah. guy's press clippings yeah. from the past 30 yeah years yeah but you know you just said broke my heart and that was something that again maybe this is just so sentimental of me but Mo I know that you you, you're a very professional journalist as a critic you were always very professional but I also know that you were one of the earliest critics that like put your heart out there you you always (laughs) knew which shows you loved you know and and, uh, you know Spartacus uh Lost and, uh, you know, just I could name multiple shows, Battlestar Galactica, many, many more. But Lost was one of them. I remember going mm-hmm. to Chicago one time the day that the last episode of Lost had aired and you were on the cover, you know, the front cover of the Chicago Tribune. And you clearly loved that show. Yeah, and it, I did. There's a whole chapter of the book about all the shit that went down on that show. And I just uh, think, you know, like that that must that must hurt you more than just 
this is hurtful because this is bad shit happening to good people. Like the, 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 we care about Hollywood more because we, we kind of, we bond with these. Shows. Yes, absolutely. And I think that I thank you for saying that honestly, because I do think I'm a sort of heart forward critic or writer and I do yeah. care. I wouldn't do any of the criticism I did or the feature writing or the reporting I've done if I didn't care. You know, I'm just very much engaged psychologically by what it is. And I think television in particular and the television year, the 22 episode seasons and so forth that I feel I came up with and a lot of us came up with that really fostered the sense of emotional connection that was so yeah. deep and so rich, you know, and even though, you know, something like Mad Men or Breaking Bad, it was like 13 episode seasons, you still felt like the psychology of the characters and your, your, the emotions that this piece in, evoked in you were so, it was all so important. So yeah. it was really, and, and so the thing is, what I had to do is pick apart my own assumptions. And that's really what the last chapter was. It was, I had heard for years that it was a difficult writer's room. What did I think that meant? And the thing is, you know, I didn't know what I knew. I did an anniversary podcast about Lost in 2018. And um, Damon Lindelof and Carlton Hughes came. And it, once again, they gave me an interview or gave me and my partners an interview. And, um, you know, I, th I, I, don't, I don't know what to do about the fact that I, I lead with my investment so to speak you know like i yeah. i did and i do and i don't want to not be that person but it absolutely broke my heart what i learned about loss like when i sit down on that path to um really dig into what occurred at loss because you know if we're going to delve into what occurred on lost can we make something useful out of that and that's I, that's what's really heartening about the response to my book is I know that as writers, we've all had this experience. You put something out there in the world and it was not received the way that you had intended. And you're like, oh, wow, I screwed up or like people, I didn't explain it right or I didn't do it right. And I think they're not ready or they didn't want to hear it or just it just went splat and nobody paid attention. Yeah. Um, so yeah. with this book, what's so heartening to me is that the creative community in Hollywood and the audience for the the works that they create are of the same mind in that abuse of power should not be routine. People should not be systematically mm -hmm. and institutionally harmed in order for f film and TV shows to get made. If you don't want your you know, phone to be made by 10-year-olds who are being abused, you also don't want your spy drama to be a place where people routinely um, bullied and psychologically intimidated to the point where they had mental health difficulties, you know, like, and by the way, underpaid wildly. So yeah, I think yeah. that's what's so heartening to me is that we've begun this process of, I don't think that reflexive hero worship of in transference yeah. of, well, you know, if someone made a really good film, the qualities of that film must be within that person. I mean, I do think that Johnny Depp has given some wonderful performances. Do I think that <laughs> the characteristics of those good performances transfer over into how he conducts himself? Not so much anymore. Um, so I think we're starting to do that. We're starting to finally recognize that it isn't glamorous. If you've been around the industry for more than 10 minutes... I've 
you know, on a set in Vancouver, in a production office in London, uh, you know, in in a back office, you know, uh, or a set in L.A. It's not glamorous. People are working long hours. It's often mundane. They're off. People are often underpaid or bored or irritated or you know just cranky and hungry. Like it. So the industry has done this wonderful job of creating this. Uh, like I guess it's sort of like those fake paintings they'll use in the backdrop of, of a like to make you think you're in the Scottish Highlands or whatever. And it's not that. It's not glamorous. It can be wonderful. It can be fun. It can produce cathartic funny, silly, amazing, moving entertainment, but it, it's a workplace. And that's, that's really like, I talked to Damon Lindelof and a couple of years ago, I talked to Jeff Garland and whatever you think of how those conversations went, we need to have that conversation. Why was it thought by you that this workplace should be, should operate this way? And I do think that there's some utility into people grappling with it. And in the book, yeah. I'm yeah. grappling with it that at length at 400 pages, because I'm not, the book is not, you know, 400 pages of me telling you what not to watch because that person is bad. I don't care. Like, I can't answer that question. It's much more like, this is hard stuff. Let's really get into it. And also state some things plainly, which is abusing people is wrong. Let's not do that. Well, let's let's leave it there because I think that's a great place to end. Maureen Ryan, author of Burn It Down, Power, Complicity and a Call for Change in Hollywood. Thank you so much for joining us here on Working. We could have talked all day. We could have. Thank you so much. This was amazing. I appreciate it. Coming up next, June and I will talk about how a reporter's feelings about their beat can shape their work. All that and more after the break. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. June, what a meaningful and illuminating conversation that was. I've I've been reading Mo Ryan's fearless reporting during the Me Too era, but now I'm definitely going to seek out her book. Um, you know, one thing that really stands out clearly there is this idea of systemic problems as opposed to the awful deeds of one terrible man, you know, like your Harvey Weinsteins and et cetera. So... Um, do you get the sense that Mo is frustrated by the amount of attention that goes towards those kinds of highly visible abusers? I'm going to answer that question just by noting that one of the things I really liked about Burn It Down was how relentlessly Mo focuses on that kind of systemic issue that you pulled out there. The ways that some people who are seen as valuable to the studios are given 
a shocking amount of leeway, even after there have been multiple credible accusations of unfair and abusive behaviour, while others can see their careers severely damaged or even ended because they speak out. And there's a chapter in the book about producer Scott Rudin, another one of those high-profile cases that people had been talking about for years before consequences were faced. But yeah, there is much more about what, this is my phrase now, the sort of banality of inequity. I mean, why mm-hmm. do TV and movie shots last 12 or 16 hours a day? That on its face is bonkers. And of course it causes all kinds of problems. And yet very few people question that convention and anyone who did would be considered to be rocking the boat. So Mo is really good about talking about those, what you might call little things. Right, right. Well, Mo refers a few times in your conversation to the fact that a film set or a writer's room, you know, really any of these spaces is actually a workplace and should be considered as such. Um, But sometimes there are creators in the industry who push back against that basic idea. Am I right in inferring that she has just no patience for that objection? Absolutely. I really like the way that she talked about why bad workplace stories that come out of Hollywood have more impact than ones that come from other less glamorous industries. Yes, part of it is the fame and maybe the wealth of the people involved, but it's also that the shows and movies they make can so often move us viewers with tales of like individuals bravely standing up to injustice. So the reality of how poorly the people who do that inside the industry are treated can be really depressing. But yeah. it is mm-hmm. a workplace. They, you know, it's this is HR's job to point out these problems or, you know, they shouldn't have these problems in the first place. But yes, it is definitely a workplace. Mm hmm. Um, You know, also early in your chat, Mo talks about the practical ethics Mm. behind reporting, you know, this kind of big investigative story. Um, And so here I I was wondering about this. There are some journalists who've done really high profile work along these lines and they go tactfully unnamed (laughs) in your interview. But, you know, I'm thinking mainly about Ronan Farrow at The New Yorker and Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey at The New York Times. You know, the, the three of them shared a Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how would you characterize Mo's approach as distinct or different from the methods of, of these, these and other colleagues? Yeah, I don't know if it's a difference in approach as much as her experience in covering Hollywood and particularly covering television. Um You know, as we've mentioned, she's a veteran TV critic and reporter. She's been writing about this world for more than 25 years. She has connections and she doesn't get into this in the book, but I've done some TV writing myself. And I would say that in general, TV writers have an unusually high level of access to the people who make the stuff they write about, whether that's writers, actors, or to a lesser extent, network executives. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's ex- I think it has changed quite a lot since the pandemic. But in the old days, which is to say pre-2020, the Television Critics Association tour would take over L.A. area hotels twice a year for two or three week periods, solid everyday work. And when they're there, the journalists would have a chance to ask questions of the people who make the shows. And in the evenings, there are these events where you can talk to them in a more informal setting. Don't get me wrong, you know, this is clearly work, hard work, and everybody knows it. 
but it does mean that you can ask questions and build relationships. And reporters outside that world don't have those connections for better or for worse. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, this industry is often described or even defined in terms of relationships. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, as you said, Mo is a, is a veteran in mm -hmm. this field and obviously has earned just a lot of trust among so many different kinds of stakeholders over the years. Um, <clears throat> I was I kind of chuckled um, the moment in your conversation where um, she says that some of those relationships now are with corporate fixers <laughs> and like legal spin doctors. Yes. <laughs> um, but it's also fascinating to hear her say that um, going after studios or, you know, big productions actually hasn't made her an industry pariah. Um, so this is this is kind of a weird question to ask with, with the whole industry stuck in a labor stalemate yeah. at the moment. Yeah. But could it be the case that Hollywood actually wants, like really wants to do better? Ooh. Call me a cockeyed optimist, Nick, but I think that's right. I mean, there are several ways that people can respond in situations like this. And at times like this, they can effectively say, hey, I came up in this industry. If I made it through, why should I make it easier for the people who are coming after me? Uh, yeah, which right. is, you know, an attitude that often elides or ignores the extra challenges that people of color, women, perhaps especially mothers of young children and other marginalized people have to overcome. Let's face it, that's how it has worked for many years. Or mm -hmm. you can look around and think, why do we keep getting into these situations where we have to keep making giant payoffs or spend money on lawyers to maintain this uncomfortable status quo. And I should also mention that the last section of Mo's book is about potential ways of starting to address these inequities, both in terms of asking what reparative justice might look like for survivors, but also discussing in what I think is a realistic way, some basic changes that could and obviously should, I would say, be made to the system. So it is kind of hopeful crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's that's nice to hear, especially in light of, you know, the news that we're seeing um, out of Hollywood. Yeah. Um, you know, you reflect in the interview on the fact that Mo comes to her craft from this place of real enthusiasm mm. and, and genuine feeling. Yeah. I think you use the term heart, yeah. right? Um, do you think that that specific quality um, helped her to cultivate trust in the industry, you know, beyond the fact of her longevity and professionalism and, you know, the the depth of her contacts list. I do. You know, I, I don't know if you've experienced this, Nate, but given the field you work in, I suspect you must have. Like critics mm -hmm. <laughs> in certain beleaguered genres are often told by people in those fields, you should be raising us up. You shouldn't be, you know, dragging us down. Don't talk about, right. you know, those bad things. I really think some performers and administrators genuinely believe that, like, if critics truly love the theater or, you know, say jazz, they wouldn't give bad reviews because that won't put bumps on seats or sell records or get people to tune into TV shows or whatever it is. Obviously, that's utter nonsense. But I think there is a sense that Mo has established that this is a world she really, truly, deeply cares about. You know, she's not mm -hmm. waiting in looking for trophies. She's not doing this for the big splash. She genuinely loves this art form and she wants it to do better and to be better. 
which requires writers' rooms to be more diverse, for actors of colour to be treated fairly, and for executives not to be, you know, predatory creeps. And I think that comes across in her writing and especially in this book. It's it's really great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that raises another quick question. Um, You know, there's another book that's that deals um, with this basic issue that's out right now. And this is Claire Detterer's Monsters, yes. A Fan's Dilemma. Um, and, you know, I, I just thought of it now, but um, as someone who loves television, loves film, mm. um, you know, Mo grapples pretty openly in this book, in her book, with um, The Reckoning, yeah. right? Realizing um, this is a show like, for instance, Lost, which yeah. you mentioned. Yeah. It's a show that she invested in and championed and had all these, you know, positive associations with. And I wondered, like, does she go through a similar kind of um, process of, you know, sort of realignment um, that Claire Detterer describes? Yeah, she does. And she, you know, some some in some situations she talks with people who have, you know, brought about these negative situations that have brought down these these really, for many people, meaningful, uh, important things in their lives, you know, that have opened up worlds to them and made them think about things and have just generally been very important. And I think really that's where the power of the book comes from, that she just, she just loves this world so much. And she, you know, wants to give people a chance. She wants everybody to have a chance, though. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, she, she, she really struggles with that, I think. Um, and in some cases, you can tell that it's hard for her to right. acknowledge that some of these great shows really, you know, kind of the greatness came out of some really challenging and really very unfair situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So despite the burn it all down uh, <laughs> uh, headline grabbing title, there's something really um, hopeful, as you say, and, and reconstructive here. Yeah. That sadly, is all the time we have for today's show. Um, But thanks, June, for all of these insights. Um, Before we go, just one more reminder that if you join Slate Plus, you'll get to hear all of our episodes ad-free. You'll also hear exclusive segments on our show and a lot of other Slate podcasts, and you'll get to hear entire bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. And of course, you'll get full access to all of the articles on Slate.com. Sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Maureen Ryan for being our guest this week. And thanks to our producer for this episode, the great Zach Rosen. We'll be back next week for a conversation between Nate and the Grammy winning composer Maria Schneider. Until then, get back to work.